If you are interested in volunteering, um, then send an email to info at signumu.org uh, and we will connect you with our regional moot team. All right. Um, sorry, audio glitch uh, uh, over the stream. Apologize for there, but uh, we should be back now. Should be fine. Uh, all right. That's okay. You didn't miss any substantive discussion. I was just doing announcements. Uh, so let us jump into uh, the uh, uh, the text here and see how far we can get um, now that the revolution has officially begun. Okay, so we're... <clears throat> um, we ended last time, which was a long time ago now, three weeks ago. Um, we ended uh, looking at the, the sort of the interesting moral dilemma that was opening out, right? Uh, the way in which both Manny... And also, prof are doing things that they're not necessarily that they don't necessarily believe in that they're not necessarily comfortable with, um, uh, like stealing from people in order to fund the revolution, and they have justifications for it. And other people have done much worse things than this, and they'll be in a position to give money back to people once the revolution happens and stuff like that. Um, but of course, we were remembering that prof's first evaluative question. Uh, that he asked Manny when trying to ascertain Manny's political philosophy um, was under what can, under what circumstances is it moral for a group of people to do something that it is not would not be considered moral for an individual to do, and Manny did not answer that question. That question was never answered. Right? It, it kind of was floated out there. Right? And so the issue, the question, was made explicit. But the text didn't answer it. Um, so we can immediately see that, um, you know, Heinlein is not is not kind of positing some sort of um, rosy uh, kind of simple view of revolution. Right. He's very clear on the fact that this is this is a this is a, a morally, ethically complicated situation, right? Um, and it's clear that Manny is uncomfortable. He tells his conscience to go to sleep, right? Um, and he believes this is for the greater good. But it's a problem, right? It is, um, uh, it is still um, an interesting thing to watch, right? And see how that develops, to see how sort of the conflict between the duty to the revolution and their, um, you know, sort of private views, private morality, uh, as it were, how that, how those things are related uh, to each other, how they continue to relate to each other. Um, and uh, Carrie, I think that's a really interesting point that uh, Mike seems to be exploring this to its fullest extent. Yes, he does. Um, Mike, um, uh, Mike, we are reminded occasionally that what was Mike seeking? Like, what is Mike's angle in all of this? What does Mike get out of the revolution? Well, two things, primarily, right? One, companionship. And two, 
amusement, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's his sense of, remember the whole thing began, the entire collaboration between Manny and Mike began in the context of Manny saying, if you want to do more, play more jokes on people, check with me and, you know, clear them with me first. Um, because he wanted to profit from it. And that, of course, turned out to be true in a much, much bigger way, right? He is profiting from it. You know, all, all, all loonies are profiting from it because Mike is working with them on their revolution. Um, uh, but ultimately, it's still kind of... Uh, uh, it's still kind of, uh, uh, ultimately, for Mike, about amusement. And we will see occasional um, reminders of that. Um, but anyway, okay, just uh, a few other uh, passages about interesting issues connected with uh, the progress of the revolution as it begins. Um, here's another kind of dilemma that arises when they're going to recruit Hazel, uh, the, 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 the red-haired kid uh, that Manny met at the meeting. Um, by the way, I learned at Mythmoot uh, uh, talking to folks, and I didn't know this, I haven't read enough Heinlein to know it, um, that Hazel Jones, right? Hazel, is that her last name? Hazel, Hazel Jones? Um, Hazel, this girl who is recruited for the revolution here, uh, is a protagonist in, uh, in uh, some of Heinlein, Heinlein's other works, um, which came before this, uh, so that his embedding the character of Hazel in uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, um, is something like an Easter egg, something like a prequel, uh, right? Which is really fun. Um, Hazelstone. Hazelstone, right. Great. Thank you. Yes. Um, Hazelstone. Um, I knew it had that sound in it. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I thought that was really fun. Uh, and, uh, of course, I can only imagine... Uh, how much different my experience would have been of reading this section uh, if I had read those uh, those books first, as I'm pretty sure that's the order Arthur Wright in which they came out. Um, right, the uh, the stories about Hazel Stone came first, and then the Moon is a Harsh Mistress came afterwards. Right, so this would have been, um, you know, like the uh, yeah yeah. So it would have been like the uh, the magician's nephew effect again. The the you know. Uh, the backstory uh, explained uh, phenomenon, which is uh, which is always really fun. Um, anyway, okay, that is that was that was cool to learn. I didn't know that. Okay, but they're talking about recruiting her because she is clearly a juvenile, and they don't know whether that is right to do. It's they they um, Manny has a good eye for recruitment, right? He can uh, he can tell a good prospect uh, for the revolution, and he can tell she is one. But she's just a kid, right? Um, no harm done. Dear Wyo, does Sidrus propose to make this is prof speaking? Does Sidrus propose to make this child a full comrade? Let her know that we are committed to revolution, with all the bloodshed, disorder, and possible disaster that entails? That's exactly what she is requesting. That is, Sidrus is requesting to make Hazel a full comrade. But, dear lady, while we are staking our lives, we are old enough to know it. For that, one should have an emotional grasp of death. Children seldom are able to realize that death will come to them personally. One might define adulthood as the age at which a person learns that he must die, and accept his sentence undismayed. Prof, I said, I know some mighty tall children. Seven to two, some are in party. No, Betcopper. I'll give odds that at least half of them don't qualify. 
and we may find it out the hard way at the end of this, our, at the end of this, our folly. Prof, Wyo insisted, Mike, Manny, Sidrus is certain this child is an adult, and I think so too. Man, asked Mike. Let's find a way for Prof to meet her and form own opinion. I was taken by her, especially her go-to-hell fighting, or would never have started it. Once again, we see Prof's reservations, right? And his reservation is purely unethical grounds, right? Is it is it ethical to recruit a child who can't really understand what she's getting into, right? By entering the revolution, you are risking your life. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're we are entering into something which is aim which is you know careening towards bloodshed, disorder, and possible disaster. Um, can she possibly understand to be committed to that? Um, so his his sort of little mini lecture about adulthood and um, having an emotional grasp of death, right? Um, Manny's response to it, of course, is is practical. Um, by that definition, a lot of adults are not uh, are not uh, are not adults. In fact, right? Very few, or not very few, but many adults don't really live in that state of uh, in that state of mind. Now, but the question is: Notice that um, 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 notice that once again, the theoretical question isn't answered, right? Is it ethical to recruit children who don't really understand what's going on? Of course, they've been using children, the Baker Street Irregulars, um, but they're only indirectly involved. They're not really, they're not as, that, and that's the distinction, of course, that Prof is making. Um, they're not full comrades. They're not part of the conspiracy. Uh, they're just playing a role that they themselves don't understand. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, not something they're likely to face uh, uh, to face death over. Um, but, you know, Hazel is going to be inducted as a full comrade. Um, the question never gets answered, right? The question never gets answered of, is it, is it, you know, moral to do this? Um, Sidrus insists, Wyo says that Sidrus insists that Hazel knows what she's doing, right? Hazel understands. Hazel does have a full, that she's an adult. She does have a full grasp of the situation and is committed to it and willing to risk her life. Um, in which case, okay, I guess it's fine. I guess we've solved, you know, we've settled that particular um, ethical problem. But again, you know, I was saying that the other children aren't really fully involved, but of course they have been involved, right? They've been the one who've been distributing, um, you know, the revolutionary literature and stuff, right? And they don't usually get in trouble, but it's possible they could get in trouble, right? Especially if the, the Dragoons start a, um, a serious crackdown. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think we can see, so, I, but once again, the question of would it be moral for us to do that, right, as a group, um, is not really answered. The question of where are the limits and where shall we draw the limits? We see Prof wanting to draw limits, right? And, we kind of avoid that crisis, that limit, you know, that that limit is not drawn because, you know, we're, we're assured that it's not actually needed in this case. Right. But once again, we're we're kind of asked about that. And I think that it's um, 
I think it's a really important question. To me, it's one of the most interesting things about the way that this revolution is depicted, um, is that it is... Heinlein, I think, does a really interesting job of, like, on the one hand, it would be easy to, you know, in describing, you know, an underdog's revolution like this uh, to make it sort of over rosy, right? Like, you know, that this is... uh, these people are obviously the downtrodden, right? They obviously have God on their side and, uh, you know, and the, the, the bad guys are, are finally defeated and everyone cheers and everything is wonderful, right? It would be easy to write a story like that. Many have written that kind of story. It would also be easy to go the other way, right? And just be really cynical and have it be like this sort of dark thing and, the you know, and you're not sure whether to cheer or not when the revolution succeeds and, um, but he doesn't do that either, right? Um, but he does, instead, what he does is leave a lot of these open questions. Um, and I think that he is uh, very interestingly, and I would say even admirably, um, willing to just kind of let them sit uh, and let us as readers think about them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's much more sort of question asking uh, than kind of doctrine asserting uh, in that way. And I think that that's, um, that that's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Devorah, I do agree with you uh, that uh, the whole kids don't know they will die thing uh, is maybe fairly modern. Uh, just as I, I'd imagine kids in previous centuries saw death much more often. Ooh, well, sure. In previous centuries, no question. I mean, when, um, uh, you know, very few families did not bury one or two of their children. Um, I mean, most kids who grew toor- even towards adulthood, uh, as old as Hazel is now, would have seen a couple siblings die and certainly other kids in the town. Right. So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was certainly, um, much more of a normal, uh, fact of life, uh, in that way. I mean, goodness, even just being closer to things like the butchering of livestock makes death more a present reality. Um, that certainly than modern kids, uh, are used to encountering. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, and David, I agree. I do bet loony kids see more death than ours do. Um, yeah, even eliminations, right? Um, there seems to be a kind of, uh, think of the way that Manny talks about death, right? I mean, you know, Luna will kill you in a heartbeat. Right. I mean, like it's it's a constant struggle against death um, uh, on Luna. People die all the time. Um, And that seems to be normal. That seems to be it's an accepted fact of life. And so even that seems different. And so I agree in this way, uh, Prof himself might be a little bit uh, out of touch. Right. With loony culture. And we see this several times. Right. Prof was already uh, was already an older man when he, uh, was, uh, sent up to Luna. Um, and so he, d- he is not, you know, a sort of native of, of, uh, Looney culture, certainly not like, uh, like, uh, Manny is. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Bruce, also sex if you're on the farm, uh, which, uh, so I might as well, that's a good point. I might as well bring up, um, uh, 
another point, which I know probably makes people uncomfortable, and that is uh, the age of sexual activity and marriage uh, in this story, um, which I have to admit I find less shocking than some other things, uh, mostly because, Devorah, exactly like you're saying, the idea that... Um, you know, like the age of like maturity and adulthood doesn't begin until like, you know, 18 in theory, really more like 25 or maybe 30 is a very modern thing. Right. Um, when, uh, it, it was very normal for, uh, for kids to be fully functioning adults by the time they were 16. I know their brains aren't done developing, um, but that was, I mean, that was life. You know, when life was rougher, that was life. Um, uh, you know, uh, both boys and girls uh, were, you know, treated as and expected to act as, uh, you know, fully functioning adults, um, you know, by the time they were, um, you know, their bodies were developed. Um, and, um, uh, and that's and, and we can see again, like the mortality thing we were just talking about, it does seem to be another way in which loony society is more like older society uh, than it is like 20th century uh, uh, Earth society. It's 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 another one of those interesting points in his imagine in Heinlein's imagination of what loony culture is like. It's a really interesting uh, kind of combination, right? It's future. Right, science fiction, and there are many things that are futuristic about it, but there are also ways in which it has, you know, culturally kind of gone back uh, to an earlier time because of those um, uh, kind of confrontations with reality. Exactly, Raymond, more like a frontier lifestyle. Uh, exactly, Tomas was thinking the same thing about being it being like a frontier uh, society. Um, absolutely. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's it's. But of course, also, I would say in part, I mean, like when we hear, you know, when later on, um, you know, Manny's talking about the 14 year old girl who is the subject of the of the judging uh, case that he does uh, with Stu uh, when he meets Stu. Um, we'll talk about that because I find that a really interesting um, piece of uh, loony culture, you know, uh, loony culture. Uh, so we'll come back to that for sure. Um, but she's 14. Right. And, you know, Manny's casual remarks that you know, at the age of 14, she's almost certainly not a virgin, uh, anymore. And that she's, you know, like marriageable age. Um, part, so, you know, we talked about that in part, but also in part, I think if that makes us uncomfortable, that's the earthworm reaction, right? Uh, it's, that's, uh, um, just as if we are uncomfortable by, uh, like, like my own discomfort, uh, with, uh, uh, Manny's relationship with, uh, with Mimi, um, that makes me uncomfortable. This, the combination of maternal relationship and marital relationship uh, makes me squirm a little bit. And if, you know, the idea of, you know, this sexually active, marriageable 14-year-old girl makes you uh, uh, squirm a little bit in, the, in, in, in a similar kind of way, it makes you uncomfortable in that way. Again, I, there are several ways in which I think that Heinlein is deliberately sort of emphasize this is a different this is a different world right this is a different culture um and their culture makes sense on their terms right and he invites us but sometimes well kind of harshly right to um 
leave behind our earthworm assumptions, you know, of uh, how things are and how things should be and what is the right way for things to be, um, and invites us to step outside that and imagine this different world, even though sometimes uh, it um, makes me uncomfortable. Uh, but it's interesting to see uh, the kind of world that he's, uh, that, he's, that he's building there. All right, let's keep going. Um, thinking about the communications isn't the part that's describing the communications uh, and how they run uh, their conspiracy. I accepted cell system since was necessary to limit losses from spies. Even Wyo admitted that organization without compartmentization did not work after she learned how rotten with spies old underground had been. But I did not like clogged communications of cell system. Like Terran dinosaurs of old took too long to send message from head to tail or back. So talked with Mike. We discarded many linked channels I had suggested to Prof. We retained cells, but based security and communication on marvelous possibilities of our dinkum thinkum. And then he is uh, skipping just a little bit there. At seventh link, George supervises Herbert, Henry, and Haley. Uh, so this is, uh, he, he was going through the letters of the alphabet, right? The, the, the executive cell, um, the chairman is A, Adam, right, is the only A. The executive cell are the Bs, and then so on down. At seventh link, George supervises Herbert, Henry, and Halley. By the time you reach that level, you need 2,187 names with H. But turn it over to savvy computer who finds names or invents them. Each recruit is given a party name and an emergency phone number. This number, instead of chasing through many links, connects with Adam Salim. Mike. Security. Based on double principle, no human being can be trusted with anything, but Mike can be, could be trusted with everything. Um, it is fascinating to see how from how kind of relatively slowly and reluctantly they came to the idea like nobody ever really had the brain flash that said wait a second your friend the supercomputer can be the mastermind of our entire revolution right if that slowly emerged um, when they ha when they began to have the conversation, it was I believe Wyo who said that Mike should be chairman, or maybe it was Manny. Um, they wanted to make Manny chairman first, but um, uh, but anyway, like it's it that wasn't where they started, right? And yet now that they have begun, they are they are placing all of their money on that particular bet, right? On on Mike's. Um, abilities and on Mike's loyalty, right? Um, remember how uncertain, reluctant um, Wyo was at first even to believe that Mike could be trusted. It's the warden's computer. Surely it's loyal to the warden, right? Um, no, it's not loyal to the warden, right? That's not, that's not how it works. Um, and uh, now they base everything. So how did they make the cell system more efficient so that the communication doesn't have to go all the way up the line and all the way back down the line? Um, even though Manny had thought of ways that would prevent those lines being broken completely, right? If, uh, you know, somebody or a whole cell was taken out in the middle or, um, you know, somebody in there betrayed uh, their cells and, every, and everybody around them. Um, Mike already, or sorry, Manny already explained how you could get around that problem, but it's still inefficient, right? It still um, takes forever for communications to go. So 
every single person in the uh, in the conspiracy just goes straight through Mike. Right? Mike connects. Uh, Mike is at the epicenter of absolutely everything, based on the double principle that no human being can be trusted with anything, but Mike could be trusted with everything. Mike is incorruptible, and that's a fascinating idea. Right? It's fascinating because it seems completely contradictory. Or it seems completely, not contradictory, it seems completely um, unexpected. Right? Um, I mean, Mike could be reprogrammed, in theory, one would think. Right? Um, one would think that, uh, you know, a computer that is following programming would be the most easily... Uh, you know, altered, right? The most easily changed, the most easily, um, you know, which of them is most likely to crack under, uh, you know, under inquisition, right? Under interrogation. Well, the humans can be tortured, they can be uh, brainwashed, they can be drugged, um, uh, and Mike can't. No, but Mike could be reprogrammed in theory, right? Um, And so, um, you know, that's... um, and yet, they're willing to take that gamble. And ultimately, the gamble is not just on um, Mike's loyalty. It's also on the incompetence of the other computer men, right? Or Manny's confidence in himself, in part, right? He knows that he's a better computer man than anybody the warden has. Um, that's why they keep calling him in to fix things when things go wrong. Um, and they, being Mike and Manny, um, are so convinced that the warden's computer men are stupid um, and would never twig to any of this or figure out that Mike was behind any of this, um, that they, um, they're they just willing to assume that nobody's going to be uh, uh, nobody's going to be thinking this way um, and I think that that's um, I think that's a really interesting element uh, of this you know the way that they have changed and part of it it seems entirely fitting right not that they're trusting him but that they're risking this that they're gambling on this because at the end of the day it's a gamble right um, they're betting. They're betting on Mike. They're betting that that will work, that that will hold out. Um, and certainly on the day-to-day, um, it's definitely... Um, uh, it's definitely... Uh, I mean, it's going to pay off, um, and it seems like a good bet, but it's still a bet. Um, and you're right, Michelle. Mike could get bored with it um, and go on to something else. Remember why he's, um, why he's doing the revolution? in the first place, right? He's doing, um, uh, he's doing the revolution in the first place because he, um, he's doing the revolution in the first place because it's the only game in town, right? That's, that's, that's why he's doing it. Um, and, uh, (laughs) that's amusement, right? Loyalty and amusement. And that does seem risky, as Stephen Keen was asking, how much should you trust a computer with a sense of humor? Uh, he's unreliable. Manny was saying from the very beginning, for exactly that reason, right? Um, but um, 
but they they bet on him. Uh, and and yeah, David, as we see, loonies are inveterate gamblers, uh, and we can see them. We can see their willingness to take this risk. It seems to be part of this. Uh, like they have to they have to take risks. There's no other way. Um, it's not going to be possible in any other way. Mike was first brought in to calculate the odds, right? Um, and the odds against them would be incredible without Mike. Um, as we, you know, we see pretty quickly um, more on this. Mike could never need to suicide, could not be drugged, did not feel pain. He carried everything concerning us in a separate memory bank under a locked signal programmed only to our three voices. And since flesh is weak, we added a signal under which any of us could lock out other two in emergency. In my opinion, as best computer man in Luna, Mike could not remove this lock once it was set up. Best of all, nobody would ask Master Computer for this file because nobody knew it existed and did not suspect Mike as Mike existed. How secure can you be? Only risk was that this awakened machine was whimsical. Mike was always showing unforeseen potentials. Conceivable he could figure a way to get around Block if he wanted to. But would never want to. He was loyal to me, first and oldest friend. He liked Prof. I think he loved Wyo. No, no, sex meant nothing. But Wyo is lovable and they hit it off from start. I trusted Mike. In this life, you have to bet. On that bet, I would give any odds. We see Mike's confidence, uh, sorry, Manny's confidence in Mike. Um, he knows it's a gamble, right? He knows it's a bet, but he's going to take that bet, right, uh, against anything. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, we're going to we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to their gambling on the stupidity of the others. Right. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come to a concrete example of that and talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, Stephen Cover, I agree. Um, th th that is the whole hinge of the entire thing. Right. Um, in order for anybody else to reprogram Mike, they would have to first recognize that he's a person, right? They'd, because that's the only way he'd be a threat. Um, he's not programmed to, you know, participate in a revolution, right? To organize a revolution. They did not program him for that, right? Um, uh, in order to, to understand the kind of threat that Mike actually is uh, to authority and to the warden, um, they would have to first realize, recognize that he was alive, that he was awake, um, that he was operating independently. And that ultimately is what their bet is on there. It's not just on their being incompetent computer men. I mean, they're kind of betting on that too, but it's not only that. The, what they're betting on is their limited frame of mind, right? Um, they would never recognize the threat because they would never see Mike for who he is. Um, and so, therefore, they're safe. Then they come up with uh, the persona a little bit more. Um, have you read The Scarlet Pimpernel? Maybe in public library. Yes. Shall I read it back? I love it when Mike asks things like that. Shall I read it to you? Um, I would have, of course, been tempted to say yes. No, no. You're our Scarlet Pimpernel, our John Galt, our Swamp Fox, our Man of Mystery. 
You go everywhere, know everything, slip in and out of town without passport. You're always there, yet nobody catches sight of you. His lights rippled. He gave a subdued chuckle. That's fun, man. Funny once? Funny twice? Maybe funny always. Funny always. How long ago did you stop Jim, uh, uh, Jim, Khanna at Warden's? Forty-three minutes ago, except erratic booms. Bet his teeth ache. Give him fifteen minutes more. Then I'll report job completed. Um, so he loves this idea, right? Um, and this is why I think they don't have to worry about Mike losing interest and thinking it might be funnier to undermine the revolution instead of, uh, instead of moving it forward, right? Um, and it all hinges upon Mike's personhood, right? On Manny's perception of Mike's personhood. Remember, just going back a slide for a second, where does Manny begin explaining why he would take that bet against anybody? I trusted Mike, right? Um, Mike wouldn't. He was loyal to me. Mike, you know, would never want to. He was loyal to me, first and oldest friend. He liked Prof. I think he loved Wyo. Um, he is... He first acknowledges... I mean, completely acknowledges, right? Not with... I mean, it's when it really... Push really comes to shove. He re, Manny really believes Mike is fully a person. It's not like... Um, you know, that he is going to act like a person is going to act. He is a, per, a, a full uh, person. I was almost said a full personality, but of course, Carrie, as you were reminding me before, not just a personality. He's many personalities, right? He can manifest many personalities, whether it's Mike and Michelle, um, or whether it's Mike, Michelle, and Adam Celine, and he can impersonate many other people as well. But that doesn't change anything, right? That doesn't... Remember, um, Manny has a brief moment of anxiety about that. Um, you know, that uh, Wyo's going to give him multiple personality disorder or something. Um, but, uh, but of course, Wyo immediately assures him, no, 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 he's got enough personality for, you know, for as many as he needs. Um, ultimately, it's not about the personality. The personality is fake, right? The personality is put up and it changes. We see it evolve. We'll be looking for uh, in a minute at how it evolves um, as Adam Selene, the, how the Adam Selene persona evolves. Um, but Manny trusts first and foremost his, his faith right, is firmly and absolutely rooted in the fact that Mike is a person um, and should be treated as a person. Um, and, uh, and therefore there's no question. He's not just going to wander off. You wouldn't. People don't treat people like that, right? And because he has been treating Mike as a person, uh, he trusts Mike. Um, and here, why is this joke um, funny always? This joke of Adam Celine as the Scarlet Pimpernel, um, Mike as the man as the man of mystery. Um, it's funny because, of course, he doesn't have to go everywhere because he already is everywhere, right? He is everywhere. He does know everything. Um, he can slip in and out of town without a passport, right? Um, he is always there, and yet nobody catches sight of him. Um, this is perfectly true, um, but Mike is deeply amused by the fact 
that this is um, the way that his own actual distributed and electronic nature um, can be sort of personified, right? Um, it's not just that he's adopting particular personae like Mike and Michelle and Adam Celine. It's that his actual persona, his actual nature, um, can be kind of embodied, almost caricatured, right? I mean, it's like the idea that he is the spy master, the man of mystery, right? Um, the one who can always see what people are doing, but uh, is never detected by them. Um, you know, that he can be this sort of ultimate spy, this ultimate, um, you know, the, 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 the one in impenetrable disguise. Um, it's funny, right? Funny once, funny twice, funny always. Um, because it is, in fact, just a simple uh, description of who he really is, right? Um, it's almost like a pun in three dimensions, if you see what I mean, right? Um, Mike and the Scarlet Pimpernel in this way. Um, and then, of course, we end... Um, uh, we end... Uh, oh, hey, yeah, good point. Um Jocelyn points out that, notice uh, Manny used a definite article in the title of the book, right? Have you read The Scarlet Pimpernel? Um, I don't know if it's the only time Manny has used the word the uh, in the text, but, uh, but he, he, he can do it. You're right. When he's quoting. Um, yeah, and James, very good. James Stevens points out that, once again, Mike is a character from a book. Um, uh, and it is a really, it is, you know, He's Mycroft Holmes, like, and remember that reference about like Manny not wanting to think about how Mike rationalizes the relationship between himself and Sherlock Holmes, right? Um, because of course, in a sense, they're both imaginary characters, right? They're, neither one of them is a real person. Both of them only exist, kind of in the ether, right? Uh, in you know, both of them are personalities. Both of them are real in one sense and not real in another sense. And so, yeah, once again, he's uh, uh, paralleled to... And this is even more than just a parallel, right? It's not... I mean, he is... Uh, that was a joke. Mycroft, I mean. He was like Mycroft in some ways, and it was a little bit funny. Um, but um, uh, but this is... This is like, again, his actual being is like an expression of this fictional character... Um, it's even closer than a parallel in that way. Um, yes, Carrie, and then of course where we're going to be going from here is Prof encouraging Mike uh, to actually compose poetry, right? Uh, to become uh, a literary artist and make his own fiction and such, um, which is really, really interesting, right? It gets begins to get really meta. Notice also at the end um, um, the this is the this is the end of that sequence when um, Manny is telling Mike to do all the like uh, you know flush the sewage you know backwash the flu the sewage up to the ceiling and uh, in the warden's bedroom and stuff like that and now do these like sonic booms uh, through the ductwork and everything in the warden's house um, of course in part to make sure that uh, he's called in to uh, to see Mike to fix Mike because something's obviously wrong. Um, 
but of course, he's also doing it to please Mike. He knows this is exactly the kind of humor that Mike enjoys. Um, uh, hey, Toyota's running backwards. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny always, right? Um, so <clears throat> we can see <clears throat> in the midst of this, why is Mike enjoying doing this? Not because it is clever policy towards the revolution, um, but just you know, they both enjoy it. Manny and Mike both enjoy it, though for different reasons, right? Um, Manny because he likes to think about the warden's discomfort, um, and Manny, uh, or and Mike rather, um, just because it's the kind of joke that he enjoys, right? So we, we can notice, and once again, this seems to be an element of Manny's respect for Mike as a, uh, as a person, right? Um, he, know, he knows what he likes. He's not just using him. Right, he's not just—he's uh, not just using him to do the, to to make the revolution happen. He is uh, uh, making sure that in and through the revolution, Mike gets what he wants. Not just to keep him loyal, right? Not for a pragmatic reason, but because he's his friend and he likes to see him enjoying himself. Um, yeah. Um, now. This is when they're beginning to build out the Adam Selene character. We all put Adam Selene together, talking it over at Raffles. How old was he? What did he look like? Married? Where did he live? What work? What interests? We decided that Adam was about 40, healthy, vigorous, well-educated, interested in all arts and sciences, and very well-grounded in history, a match chess player, but little time to play. He was married in commonest style, a troika in which he was senior husband, four children, wife and junior husband not in politics, so far as we knew. He was ruggedly handsome, with wavy iron-gray hair, and was mixed race, second generation one side, third another, was wealthy by loony standards, with interests in Novilen and Kongville, as well as El City. He kept offices in Luna City, outer office with a dozen people, plus private office, staffed by male deputy and female secretary. Uh, now you'll remember they were already working on filling the literal background silence when Mike was on the phone, right? Um, that the, it, you know, you couldn't hear the normal noises you are used to hearing, breathing and that kind of thing, right? When you're, even though you don't notice it. Um, by the way, I had a, um, um, I had an experience like this just like a couple years ago, actually. Um, I don't know if any, I, I don't know how many of you um, ever get um, like your iPhone to read things to you. Um, I do quite a bit, actually. Um, uh, you know, when you're as dedicated an audiophile as I, uh, and always prefer to read with your ears than your eyes. Um, often when I'm sent long emails or I'm reading documents or something, I'll have my phone read it to me. And um, I noticed that when they upgraded, I think it was when they upgraded to the Alex voice uh, a, a few years back, I noticed it was, uh, it sounded much more convincing, much less, you know, robotic, much less uh, mechanical sounding. And it took me a while to notice, but I finally did notice they added fake breathing sounds. You can hear the Alex voice inhale before he begins a sentence. They added fake breathing uh, sounds uh, to punctuate the reading uh, of the uh, computer voice. And um, it's, um, 
anyways, it, 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 I was interested to hear about how, you know, so Mike begins to become good at impersonating. You know, he fills in background noises and, uh, um, you know, starts including various, like, biological <laughs> references and noises and things like that um, to try to make his personhood more convincing, right, to uh, uh, to fill that in. And at the same time, they begin to, to develop this persona of Adam Selene, this fake character that he is supposed to be supposed to be embodying. And both of those processes seem parallel, right? But it's interesting how it is not a question of Mike himself developing personality exactly. It doesn't seem to be that. Like he already has, I think, as you know, I, I think I agree with Wyo that he already has enough personality. Um, it's not that he didn't have any personality and is now developing it. But what he is doing is getting better and better all the time at blending in with humans, right? Blending in among the people. Um, I, I, you know, Manny comments on this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, Yeah, interesting. Stephen Keane points out that, um, you know, Mike's public name is basically, you know, first man of the moon. Adam, right? He's, he is Adam. Um, Adam makes sense as your only A name, right? He's the, he's the, the, uh, the first man, right? Um, uh, I'm not sure what to do with Celine. I'm not sure why Celine. Uh, that might make more sense to others than it makes to me. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, notice how they fill him out, right? And I can't help but think of Mike here, right? The way in which they're kind of trying to make... It's an alternate persona for Adam Selene, and Adam Selene is important for the revolution, right? This is a revolutionary figure that they're building. It's, this is not, you know, uh, just about Mike himself. Um, but, um, but it's interesting how... And this is also, in a sense... There is a sense in which this is they're like filling in a you know a background for Mike, a sort of a human persona uh, for Mike here, um, and uh, you know their decisions are kind of interesting. A match chess player, but with little time to play, um, you know, so good at chess, but doesn't get to indulge himself as much as he would like. Um, interested in all arts and sciences and very well grounded in history, right? So we're going to make some uh, uh, allowances for how much Mike knows, right? Um, I thought it was uh, very interesting. Right, of course, right, right, Celine, the, the, the moon goddess. Um, yeah, I'd forgotten that name. Is Celine a Greek name? Yeah, maybe. Huh. Yeah. The moon has a bunch of names in Greek. Um, you know, Cynthia, for instance. But, um, but yeah, okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Oh, she was the Titan. Okay, She's, that's why I wasn't thinking of her. Okay. There we go. Um, 
Right. That's why I wasn't thinking of her. Right. She's a generation before the Olympians. But so she was the Titaness who was associated uh, with the moon. Makes sense. Well, there you go. Adam of the moon. First man of the moon. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, and good, Stephen, I agree. It's not only that it's related to the moon and thus making you know, him sort of the essential lunar figure, right? I, st I speak for the moon, uh, right? Adam Selene does. Um, but also, um, as a, as a deity, rather fitting for Mike, right? I mean, this, that is, Stephen, it's interesting to me that nobody goes there, right? Nobody, nobody, it's, it's a parallel that does seem to be invited, right? Um, uh, that there are ways in which, uh, you know, talking to Mike is like prayer, like they retreat into their bedrooms, uh, and when no one is about and no one can hear them, they call out on Mike and he responds to them, right? I mean, it's there are parallels there to be made, um, but the text doesn't really make them. I don't see any overt parallels there. And yet, it does kind of lurk there, doesn't it, Stephen? You know, he there is, there is a parallel, he is um, a person, um, but he is also, in many ways, like his omnipresence, right? His, uh, uh, you know, his ability to, you know, he, uh, uh, hear what everybody is saying and everything else. You know, it's, um, um, it's very, it is a little bit uh, divine. So this idea of this sort of divine being of the moon does seem, does seem fitting there in that way. Yes. But as I say, I don't want to lean too, I don't want to lean too hard on that because um, I don't think the text, I don't see the text really inviting that comparison um, very, uh, very clearly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, interesting. Arthur is arguing that um, Adam Celine's name could even be a reference uh, to H.G. Wells, uh, his classic First Men in the Moon. Um, yeah, yeah, for, for First Men in the Moon, Adam Selene is is almost like a par uh, paraphrase of that title, right? Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Devorah says, I think it's not there because he's their friend, and calling your friend God is strange. No, I agree, and because it's a first-person narration, Devorah, and, and uh, clearly Manny doesn't think of uh, Mike that way we saw in fact the the sort of the parental relationship he's always had with Mike he thinks of Mike like a like his kid brother as if anything right um, and so no he doesn't think about him in deific ways uh, and so therefore since it's a first person narration we don't get that a lot um, but uh, so yeah that does make sense as to why we don't see that okay um Stephen Keane, here we come back to that point you were making before. The thing that drove Alvarez crackers was that phone numbers for Adam were reported, and every time they turned out wrong numbers, not nulls. We had run out, and Mike was using any number not in use and switching numbers any time new subscribers were assigned ones we had been using. Alvarez tried to trace Celine Associates using a one-wrong-digit assumption. This we learned because Mike was keeping an ear on Alvarez's office phone and heard order. Mike used knowledge to play a Mikeish prank. Subordinate who made—I I love the the concept of a Mikeish prank. 
Subordinate who made one change digit calls invariably reached Warden's private residence. <laughs> so Alvarez was called in and chewed by Warden. Couldn't scold Mike, but did warn him it would alert any smart person to fact that somebody was playing tricks with computer. Mike answered that they were not that smart. Main result of Alvarez's efforts was that each time he got a number for Adam, we located a spy, a new spy, as those we had spotted earlier were never given phone numbers. Instead, they were recruited into tail-chasing organization where they could inform on each other. But with Alvarez's help, we spotted each new spy almost at once. I think Alvarez became unhappy over spies he was able to hire. Two disappeared in our organization. Uh, and our organization, then over 6,000, was never able to find them. Eliminated, I suppose, or died under questioning. Mike thinks this is this is a Mikeish prank. This is funny every time, right? When they're trying to call and track Adam Celine, instead they, he connects them directly to the warden's private residence. I mean, come on, that's hilarious, right? But Stephen Keen, this gets back to the point that you were making earlier on. Um, why does how does nobody figure this out, right? Um, and Manny himself is concerned about that, right? Any smart it would alert any smart person to the fact that somebody was playing tricks with computer. Obviously, somebody is monkeying with the phone system, right? And Mike just answers, they're not that smart. They're not going to figure that out. And they don't seem to figure that out, right? He is right about that. Um, but again, I think that this comes back to what um, I think it was Stephen Cover was talking about before. At the end of the day, in order for them to really understand, the, I mean, what are they going to, if they did figure it out, if they did realize that uh, there was a, a problem with the phone system, what would they do? How would they fix it? What would they do to address that problem? Well, they would try to, you know, check the phones. I mean, they, anything they tried to do, Mike could circumvent, could handle, could um, uh, deceive them, right? Because the one thing that they wouldn't do, the one thing that they can't wrap their minds around is that Mike is alive and himself working against them, right? Um, and that seems to be the ultimate safeguard. Mike answered that they were not that smart. And remember, I think that that doesn't mean their intelligence was insufficient to solve this problem. I think he's basically saying they're stupid in the previous sense of stupid versus not stupids not stupids the defining element of not stupid is that they are willing to acknowledge the possibility right manny was the only not stupid in the world as far as mike knew at the beginning of the story right um and wyo and prof prove themselves to be not stupids by accepting mike as a person um, by, and Prof does it very quickly, right? Prof is very quick to accept him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, David. I think one of the things they might do is call in Manny to try to, to try to fix it or at least try to find out where it was. Now, they might not because they, if they did come to this conclusion, they would conclude that it was being maliciously tampered with and they might not want Manny to be trying to, you know, they wouldn't want through Manny word of that to possibly be leaking out. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And Devorah, I agree. I do love the idea of the spies reporting on each other. Uh, that is really fun to imagine. Um, yeah, yeah. And James points out uh, very rightly that at the beginning, even Manny was surprised that Mike had access to all the phones. Um, and remember, even Mike himself wasn't sure what he could or could not do with the phones, right? Um, so that's another way in which they're not smart enough. They're not smart enough to realize that he's doing this himself um, and probably not smart enough to realize that he has the capability to do what he has learned to do um, and learned to do because Manny asked him to do it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Wendy, sorry, I missed your comment before, but I think you, you may be right. Um, Wendy's ask, Wendy is wondering if um, Heinlein... Uh, is poking fun of religion uh, through his depiction uh, of Mike and you know, that, that kind of unspoken parallel that I was suggesting before. And it is possible. Um, I certainly think Heinlein does poke fun of religion uh, on uh, at various points. Um, but again, even for that, it's very gentle. It's extremely gentle uh, if he's doing that. He doesn't even draw sufficient attention to it to... Um, uh, uh, to, uh, to really kind of make a joke of it, exactly. But but I still think it's it's a it's a good observation. Um, when Mike started writing poetry, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. He wanted to publish it. Shows how thoroughly humanity had corrupted this innocent machine that he should wish to see his name in print. I said, Mike, for bog's sake, blown all circuits, or planning to give us away? Before he could sulk, Prof said, Hold on, Manuel. I see possibilities. Mike, would it suit you to take a pen name? That's how Simon Jester was born. Mike picked it apparently by tossing random numbers, but he used another name for serious verse, his party name, Adam Celine. Simon's verse was doggerel, body, subversive, ranging from poking fun at Vips to savage attacks on Warden, System, Peace Dragoons, Finks. You found it on walls of public WCs, or on scraps of paper left in tube capsules, or in tap rooms. Wherever they were, they were signed Simon Jester, and with a matchstick drawing of a little horned devil with a big grin and forked tail. Sometimes he was stabbing a fat man with a pitchfork. Sometimes just his face would appear, big grin and horns, until shortly even horns and grin meant Simon was here. Man of Mystery Again, notice how Mike is here taking Manny's suggestion, his his uh, Scarlet Pimpernel suggestion, and expanding it, right? Um, but one of the most interesting things about this passage to me was Manny's resistance, right? Manny seems to think it is, A, absurd for Mike to write poetry, right? Manny doesn't know whether to laugh or cry when he hears that. Mike started writing poetry. Um, and secondly, he's, you know, blown all circuits or planning to give us away, right? He thinks that this is a terrible idea. Now, it is not unusual that one of the things which, of course, turns out to be an extremely effective element of the revolution, the Simon Jester poetry and uh, wall scrawlings and things like that, um, Manny doesn't see uh, the potential of right away. Uh, Manny has a lot of blind spots. He doesn't get a lot of things. Um, it is Prof who is able to see the strategy 
of these things much more clearly uh, and much more quickly than many can very often. Um, but his characterization uh, that um, Mike's innocence has been tainted uh, by the um, uh, by humanity, right? How thoroughly humanity had corrupted this innocent machine that it, that he should wish to see his name in print. Um, that desire is it's all downhill for Mike from uh, from here, right? He's been um, he's been associating with humans. He's been trying to become more like humans, and now um, now he's corrupted, right? Um, and I think um, I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, uh, David and Arthur Harrow are both thinking of the uh, Kilroy was here legends. I don't know. I don't know much about the Kilroy legends that you're referring to, but I think you're probably right since both of you seem to be thinking about it at the same time here. Um, but again, what I th- oh, it's internally uh, here to the story, what I would pick uh, come back to is the Scarlet Pimpernel thing, right? The man of mystery. Um, Mike seems to have. It's not just vanity, right? It's not just that he has he has been associating with people so much and acclimating himself to humanity so much that he's picked up human foibles and vanities as well as, um, you know, being able to affect their mannerisms and their. Uh, you know, bodily noises and things like that. Um, but, but it's clear that Mike is actually thinking ahead. Um, Prof sees it right away. This is brilliant. Both Adam Celine's serious verse and uh, Simon Jester's doggerel, especially Simon Jester's doggerel and songs, are massively effective uh, in the... Uh, uh, in the creation of the revolution, in the in the uh, promotion of the revolution, um, and it seems much what's more to be a an extension of Manny's own. Well, it wasn't exactly a joke, right? Um, but Manny's own amusing parallel with the Scarlet Pimpernel, which Mike declared to be funny always. It's funny always. It's funny this way, too. Um, he's just expanded the joke. Um, and uh, what's more, the, the kind of simpler, more, um, uh, I don't know what, childish, earthy kind of humor of uh, Simon Jester seems a little more Mike-ish uh, as humor uh, than the Scarlet Pimpernel parallel. Um, Mike is taking the joke and running with it. The funny always joke of being the man of mystery. Um, uh, and he's running with it. And so now he's creating these new literary persona, as we were talking about, James, with your suggestion before. Um, uh, he not only is now, is uh, once again like a literary character, he now becomes himself a literary figure, creating an author persona as well as a, I mean, that Simon Jester is both, right? Simon Jester is a man of mystery and also an author, right? Um, he is a, he is a character who is created, and he is also an author. He is 
um, uh, you know, the voice, but he is also the puppet, right? He's, um, and this is, this is Mike extending the joke. Um, and it seems almost the perfection of the Scarlet Pimpernel reference, um, uh, that we had, uh, before. I think, um, that's a good theory, um, uh, Mike on YouTube is saying is matchstick drawing like a stick man or inscribed with soot from a used match. I think something like that, like something that uh, you could draw really simply uh, w with a, a matchstick. Again, as you say, presumably a burned out matchstick. Um, uh, something quick and simple that you could uh, uh, scratch as graffiti on the wall. And Devora, um, you're right. I think I hadn't been picturing that either. Devora says, I just realized it was just horns and grin, no eyes. Um, I had pictured this sketch with eyes at least, and that seems a significant thing to leave out. Um, yeah, I agree. That's a really interesting thing. I think that I hadn't been picturing that fully either. Just horns and grin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, even horns and grin meant Simon was here. Um, the horns to indicate mischief, the grin right, uh, uh, to also indicate mischief, but also the grin is a kind of, um, it's a conspiracy building thing, right? The grin of Simon Jester invites you to share the joke with him, right? He's grinning at you. Um, and so that element, right? But, but I agree, Devor, the lack of eyes is, um, uh, is really interesting. Um, uh, It does seem a fascinating omission. Um, and of course, in some ways, in some ways it's a self-portrait too. Mike can see very little. Um, I mean, I think he might be able to, there might be some video feeds, but almost everything he gets is audio. Um, Mike can tell who's in the room by listening. Um, Mike can identify places through the phone system. Um, Mike does very little vision, you know, uh, uh, you know, film surveillance. Um, he uses video feeds, both sends them to Tara and gets them back from Tara. Uh, but, um, but on Luna, he's mostly listening. Um, uh, all grin and no eyes is in some ways a kind of, uh, self-portrait there. Um, yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, but was luck that warden. Uh, so this is when they 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 start praying, playing other pranks on the warden, like the ominous messages that uh, uh, the warden's gonna uh, break his leg, and and uh, Alvarez is gonna be there to see it. Uh, Simon uh, Jester was posting these prophecies. But was luck that warden goaded too far, ran down a ramp. Even a new chum does that only once. So he walked on air and sprained an ankle close enough to a broken leg, and Alvarez was there when it happened. Those sleep losers were mostly just that. Like rumor that Authority Catapult had been mined and would be blown up another night. Ninety plus eighty eighteen men can't search a hundred kilometers of catapult in hours, especially when ninety are peace dragoons not used to peacesuit work and hating it. This midnight came at New Earth with Sun High. They were outside far longer than is healthy managed to cook up their own accidents while almost cooking themselves, and showed nearest thing to mutiny in regiment's history. 
One accident was fatal. Did he fall, or was he pushed? A sergeant. Midnight alarms made peace dragoons on passport watch much taken by yawning and more bad-tempered, which produced more clashes with loonies and still greater resentment both ways. So Simon increased pressure. Once again, we see how, you know, one of the other ethical dilemmas, right? One of the other kind of moral quandaries. The, and, and we saw this again at the very beginning when Manny was a little bit disturbed to find that their first, the first thing that they had to do was make things worse for the rest of the loonies, right? Um, to, to intensify the bad conditions on Luna and make the Wharton and Alvarez oppress uh, uh, and abuse the people more and more and more. Right, and the peace dragoons who are horrible uh, and who treat the loonies terribly and kill many of them, um, they're a godsend, right? Um, because this is this is the best thing that could possibly happen for the revolution. But what about the people who get killed every time? There's one of these conflicts uh, with the peace dragoons, right? Um, but um, we can see the way that they are manipulating the, uh, uh, the, uh, the men. Yeah. David, it's interesting. He says, at first I thought ran down a ramp should be read metaphorically. Um, right. Uh, it is easy to forget. Um, it is easy to forget the gravity situation on Luna, right? Um, you don't run down a ramp cause you're gonna, you're, you're gonna fly. Right. Um, and then you're going to drop and, and, and uh, you know, it's going to be awkward. Um, and so he ends up spraining his ankle. Um, you don't run down a ramp. Um, you might spring up a ramp, maybe. Right. Uh, using the low gravity uh, for your advantage, I suppose, uh, as you're trying to go up a slope. Um, but you can't go fast down a slope um, in low gravity. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating how often we are, how not often, how consistently we're allowed to forget about that apart, except as a theoretical fact, right? But then we get some references like this, uh, which, which remind us. Um, yeah. But notice also, final thing here, notice the power that Simon Jester has had. Again, the, um, although Manny was against it from the beginning, um, Simon Jester is immediately powerful, right? The way that they're able to use Simon Jester uh, and his doggerel verse and uh, pranks um, to goad the warden, uh, to goad the, enti- I mean, they have the entire platoon um, of uh, peace dragoons out on the surface in pea suits searching the catapult for a bomb that isn't there, right? Just because Simon Jester uh, said that they, you know, threatened that it was going to be blown up, um, with the result of you know killing one of them and creating massive unrest, um, and you know driving this wedge between the peace dragoons and the warden. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I agree, Stephen. It's easy to uh, when you think when you picture um, the, you know. Neil Armstrong and, and company, right, walking on the moon. Um, it's easy to kind of think of the, you know, the hopping gait that they use when they're walking um, and kind of associate that with the clumsy big spacesuit that they're wearing, right? Um, 
but uh, and so it's it's a little harder to imagine what walking uh, in Luna must be like uh, on a normal daily basis. What it is to walk down the hall. Um, we get reminded sometimes when somebody, for instance, is thrown out the door of the hall and they careen all the way across and uh, hit a wall on the far side. Right? It's you know you throw somebody horizontally like that and they go a long ways before they come down. Uh, there are several times when we see references to things like that where we get reminded uh, of the low gravity. Um, but, uh, but most of the time it's, you know, of course, taken for granted um, uh, uh, as you would expect. Exactly Biotrum uh, on Twitch says, you know, the, the lack of mention of the gravity um, is good world building because, of course, this is told from the loony POV and it's only indirectly um, usually, only indirectly, uh, that we get those kinds of those kinds of references. Um, yeah, the fish aren't going to talk about the water very much, right? Adam Celine, though, his poetry is different. Adam Celine's verse was on a higher plane. Mike submitted it to Prof and accepted his literary judgment. Good, I think, without resentment. Mike's scansion and rhyming were perfect. Mike being a computer with whole English language in his memory and able to search for a fitting word in microseconds. What, what was weak was self-criticism. That improved rapidly under Prof. Stern editorship. Adam Celine's byline appeared in dignified pages of Moonglow over a somber poem titled Home. Was dying thoughts of old transportee, his discovery as he is about to leave that Luna is his beloved home. Language was simple. Rhyme scheme unforced. Only thing faintly subversive was conclusion on part of Dying Man that even many wardens he has endured was not too high a price. Doubt if Moonglow's editors thought twice. Was good stuff. They published. Alvarez turned editorial office inside out trying to get line back to Adam Selene. Issue had been on sale half a lunar before Alvarez noticed it or had called to his attention. We were fretted. We wanted that byline noticed. We were much pleased with the way Alvarez oscillated when he did when did when he did see it. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Stephen, you're right. When uh, uh, when we get to Terra later on, we'll hear a lot more about the gravity. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, yeah, very good. Um, the much more subtle subversion of this. Of course, we can see the tendency of this poem, right? We can see what they are trying to build through this, through Adam Selene's poem in Moonglow. Um, that sense of home, that sense of belonging, patriotism in short, right? This is the very first step of patriotism, a poem which acknowledges the completely unpatriotic standpoint of your average loony, right? Who only thinks of the rock, right, uh, as a place of confinement, um, uh, you know, the place you survive, not as uh, your beloved home, um, but then coming to the realization, right, that uh, Luna is, in fact, exactly that. Um, so I think that that's, um, uh, that's, that's, that's really fun. I think that a lunar is one lunar cycle. Devorah, I've never been 100% sh clear on exactly this. That is, um, you know, the lunar cycle 
from the point. Like basically, what I'm not sure of is how exactly is the lunar cycle differing on the moon, right? Um, I mean, presumably it has to do with the orbiting of, uh, um, you know, the moon around the Earth, um, and therefore of the sort of does the Earth change phases in exactly the same way? Um, not 100% sure how it would work exactly from the point of view of the moon. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, I presume it would be 28 days. But see, Mudmore, even the concept of day is tricky, right? Because day is a Terran concept from how long Earth takes to uh, uh, to rotate um, day and night would not have the same meaning um, uh, on Luna so I'm not sure how it breaks down exactly um, yeah David says I read one lunar as the time from local sunrise to local sunrise uh, so 29 days I could see that I could see that um Anyway, I have to admit, the first paragraph here on this slide is one of the places I had to suspend disbelief. Um, I am able to enter into secondary belief about Heinlein's Luna at almost every point and about Mike. I believe in Mike. I have no problem with Mike. Um, I love Mike as a literary invention. I don't have any problem, uh, you know, investing myself in the idea of Mike and of Mike's capacities. Um, that a computer with the whole English language in his memory would thus, because he has the whole English language in his memory, um, be easily able to uh, uh, compose neat and perfect poetry, I disbelieve. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I'm not really sure about that. Um, I, you know, Mike Scansion and rhyming were perfect. Like, yes, if he understood the rules of Scansion and the rules of rhyming, I think that he could form that. I, I, I'm not saying that I think that he would mechanically not be able to do it, but um, I, uh, I disbelieve. I disbelieve in Mike's uh, poetic abilities, but maybe, um, maybe I, that just means that I am refusing to go all the way and believe that Mike's a real person, right? You know, maybe it's his own, you know, his creative spirit that I'm doubting. Um, maybe it's just the way that Manny describes it, right? You know, he basically is saying like, because Mike was a computer, therefore, you know, composing poetry was easy for him. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think it might be right. I could. It's not that I can't believe Mike could write poetry. It's that I don't believe his being a computer is what would make it easier necessarily. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, Devorah, I can believe in his good poetry as a part of his personhood. Um, yeah, and so Devorah is suggesting perhaps. Um, the explanation of knowing the whole language is only Manny's attempt to explain it to himself, perhaps. Of course, though, we see Manny believes in his personhood very implicitly, but I think Manny also 
is not much into poetry uh, either. Um, David is probing here. Okay, am I skeptical that it would be good despite being technically perfect? Um, yes. Yes. Um, it, the uh, what makes poetry cool, right? Um, the the art and the challenge of poetry is the combination of the two, right? It's not just the formula. Yes, I could believe that a computer could be taught the rules of scansion and rhyming and therefore could generate lines that scanned and rhymed perfectly. Um, but the interplay of meaning between form and content, between one sense and another and the way that the, the, the structure itself you know, puts them against each other, um, again, it's one thing to know the rules, and it's another thing. It's a that's a really high level. I mean, if you can, it, it's, and I don't just mean a really high level of like personhood. I mean a really high level of understanding of communication. Remember that Manny himself was saying that Mike used to communicate like a, uh, uh, like a child, right? Like a uh, like an obnoxious child with a big vocabulary. Um, this is uh, extremely advanced, um, and extremely advanced in a dimension that Manny does not seem to be giving it credit for, basically. Um, that's, that's my problem. That's my problem. Um, Stephen King wants to know, is writing a poem harder than writing a joke? Yes. Um, but Stephen, that's actually a really good illustration, right? The writing of a joke, what makes a joke funny almost always, is the interplay of different meanings, right? Or at least the interplay between um, uh, the expected and the actual, right? The uh, um, uh, the disappointment of expectation, right? Like the knock-knock joke um, builds on expectation. There is the expected response, um, uh, and the expected response is altered, and it's that alteration from the expected response uh, that makes it funny usually once right um uh, a lot of humor uh is like that a lot of jokes work like that um so i get but but there's so there's some kind of interplay uh between different meanings involved in almost all humor uh in that way so um so steven i do think but like making a pun is like the simplest version of the kind of, but like the kind of interplay of, you know, multiple meanings and abstract meanings. It's just, it's, it's just a leap for me to believe. That's all. That's all. Because we haven't seen Mike building up to that in exactly that way. But I don't want to undersell Mike. Maybe he can do it. But I think that if Mike has progressed to that, then Devorah, I would come back to um, your point that. Perhaps my problem is not with Mike's being able to do this. My problem is uh, inspired by the fact that Manny himself doesn't seem to really understand it, doesn't really seem to get it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Carrie, Vogon poetry is always inspiring. Um, I mean, including of, uh, you know, spontaneous... Uh, self-slaughter by one's own internal organs apparently but uh but yes always inspiring 
uh, for sure. Um, yeah, okay. Let's keep going. Um, hey, we get to at least start. I don't know if we'll finish it, but we get to at least start the... Uh, um, the legal discussion. Um, this is, of course, going to lead back to the revolution eventually. Um, but I, I find this incident really interesting because it's been a while since we've gotten something like this. Um, and that is an incident where we are just kind of brought back into conflict with, anyway, a confrontation of, an experience of loony culture, right? And some reminders about what things are like in Luna. And I really like this incident for this reason, like we get this kind of world building moment, um, which is really interesting because we've been, the narrative has after the, um, you know, after the hotel room, right? After the, after the, the, the hotel room in which Wyo and Manny and Prof got together and decided to start the revolution. Since then, there have been individual scenes, right? Back at the Davis household and, uh, and, uh, you know, with Mike in the, uh, in his computer room. But, um, a lot of the narrative has been, you know, from 10,000 feet, right? As we've been surveying and he's been telling us things that have been happening as the months have gone by and everything. Um, so it's <clears throat> been a while since we've been sort of confronted with the differences between uh, Looney Society and Earthworm Society. And of course, uh, the travails of Stu Lejoie, uh are uh, a reminder of this. So let's look and see what is it? that we learn here, right? What is it that um, this incident is sort of confronting us with about Looney Society? And then the, my follow-up question is, why? Why now? Why do we take this time? We didn't need this whole scene, right? I mean, yes, it's important for Manny to meet Stu Lejoie, as it turns out. Um, but <laughs> could have happened a lot more efficiently. I mean, heck, in the form of the narrative he'd been having, it could have been as simple as him saying... Um, you know, that's how I met Stu Lejoie one day, right? Um, he could have jumped straight to bringing Stu home to dinner, right? Uh, it, it, um, you know, the rest of this stuff isn't absolutely necessary for the revolutionary narrative, right? But it does accomplish some world-building things. So let's see what those are and how they're relevant. A boy of 14 spoke up. Say, aren't you Gospedino Kelly? right. Why don't you judge it? So they have a, they're looking for a judge, right? They come in saying, um, we need a judge for this case. Oldest looked relieved. Will you, Gospodine? I hesitated. Sure, I've gone judge at times. Who hasn't? But don't hanker for responsibility. However, it troubled me to hear young people talk about eliminating a tourist, bound to cause talk. Decided to do it. So I said to tourist, will you accept me as your judge? He looked surprised. I have choice in the matter? I said patiently, Of course, can't expect me to listen if you aren't willing to accept my judging, but not urging you. Your life, not mine. He looked very surprised, but not afraid. His eyes lit up. My life, did you say? Apparently, you heard lads say they intend to eliminate you. You may prefer to wait for Judge Brody. He didn't hesitate, smiled and said, I accept you as my judge, sir. I can't really do... I'm not going to try to do a French accent for Stu, by the way. Uh, I don't want to insult the French in that way. Um, but um, <laughs> the way of me attempting to do a French accent. Um, okay, so what do we see here? Tell me what we learn about Looney Society here. 
sure I've gone judge at times. Who has it? I love that phrase, gone judge, right? Um, I've been trying to think about how to how to integrate that phrase into daily conversation. Um, are you going judge over there? But see, when you say it that way, it sounds like going rogue, right? Um, like if somebody's going judge, it makes it sound like they're, you know, judging things, uh, you know, but, but that's not clearly what it means to Manny at all. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting, David. I didn't notice that. Or I wasn't thinking about it. David said uh, uh, he noticed that Stu dropped an article, but only one. Uh, he must be trying to keep the loony uh, lingo. Maybe. I have choice in the matter. Um, uh, that sounds like it's possible, of course, just to suggest that English itself isn't his first language. Um, but it is interesting. Maybe he is, in fact, attempting to echo, but he's not good at it yet. Right. He's uh, he's not a native loony speaker for sure. Um, OK, so, yes, the legal system is certainly very informal. And it's clear that anybody can serve as judge at any time. Um, what's required? What's required uh, in order for somebody to be a judge? We, 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 we do clearly learn that in this passage, right? What's required? Uh, yeah, Mudmore, exactly. Consent. Consent. Consent uh, of um, both parties involved. They, the kids, the prosecutors, right? Uh, the accusers ask him, right? So they've brought it up. Um, why don't you judge it? Will you gossip in? They've consented, right? So all that's left is to get, um, is to get the tourists' consent. Um, I have choice in the. I have choice in the matter. He assumes that if he's going to be hauled in front of a magistrate, I mean, normally you don't ask for your consent there, right? When you're being hauled physically in front of a judge, you know, on Terra, that's usually involuntary, right? So he's surprised that he has a choice. Um, I said patiently, of course, can't expect me to listen if you aren't willing to accept my judging. Um... It has to be voluntary. So if both parties are willing uh, to consent, so the authority of the judge is derived entirely from the consent of the two parties. Right? Um, mutual agreement. Exactly, Alan. Um, uh, so what else do we learn? How frequent it is? I've gone judge at times who hasn't, right? Everybody's done this. This is totally normal, right? Um, this apparently is a normal way to settle disputes, serious disputes, presumably. I mean, you know, presumably people don't do this, you know, for like completely small, random, you know, like two kids arguing over who gets to, you know, eat the last cookie or something like that, right? But, um, uh, but for, it seems almost any serious dispute is to be settled this way. Um, and this is interesting in contrast to what we heard before. Remember that the references to eliminations, um, 
this passage seems to be almost corrective, in a sense. Remember when we learned about eliminations before, right? Like, what happens to bad actors on Luna? They get eliminated, right? Um, you don't have to worry about people misbehaving. They don't need law. Why don't they need law? Everybody's polite in Luna, because if you're not polite, you're going to get eliminated at the nearest airlock, right, uh, without a second thought. Uh, so everybody's polite. Um, uh, you know, people... Uh, remember when the the guy was being really rude to him, asking him for his ticket when he was trying to get into the that first revolutionary meeting? Um, uh, he was wondering what that guy's life expectancy was, right? People like this don't last long uh, uh, in Luna. So the implication that we could easily have drawn from that passage was, I mean, this is really the Wild West, right? Um, uh, you know, people are just killing each other right and left. And um, uh, it's, uh, you know, that there's no, without scruple, right? Without concern of, uh, for repercussion or anything like that. Um, and, um, but we see here, no, it doesn't actually, it, there's, it, it, it is not that um, casual lynchings are the normal uh, way, th you know, disputes are settled. The normal ways disputes are settled is with a judge. And who's qualified to be a judge? Anybody. Anybody who is asked to be. Anybody with any common sense. Now, again, both have to agree. Both parties have to agree uh, to the judging. Um, but everybody has judged at one point or other who hasn't judged, right? Um, now, he doesn't enjoy it. Manny doesn't hanker for responsibility. Um, uh, it's not something that he goes around seeking, um, unlike his friend Judge Brody, who does it professionally, right? He makes his living judging. Um, because, of course, you've got to pay the judge. You've got to make it worth his time. Uh, and also, you've got to show that you've got some skin in the game so you're not wasting everybody's time, right? Um, but I do not think, Sarah, that uh, Stu really understands that he's up for the death penalty, Um his eyes light up and he says, my life, did you say? He doesn't get it. I think he doesn't understand. I mean, they've been talking about eliminating him, but I don't think he knows what that means. I don't think he fully gets what that means. Um, my guess would be that he was thinking it meant that they were going to throw him out, right? Um, uh, maybe some form of, you know, maybe they're going to kick him out of the city. Maybe they're going to, you know, prevent him. I don't, you know, maybe he thinks it's, I don't know what he thinks it is, right? But he does not seem to understand uh, that his life is actually, in fact, at jeopardy, that they could uh, just kill him. Um, and Stephen Cover, you're right. Um, he's encountering a bunch of kids. These are like teenagers. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and good, Stephen Keene, you're right. He's not, he doesn't own, they don't only have to agree to the judge, but to the judgment. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and, and David Attlee, I also agree that if everybody goes judge, that implies that the crime rate is very much higher than implied by the earlier text, at least in small matters, Right. But again, I think it's not only crime, but also disputes, right? These are clearly civil as well as criminal cases, um, to use the earthworm uh, terminology, which would be utterly irrelevant here, of course. Um, but both of the, all of those things are sort of uh, involved here, right? 
Um, but Stu accepts him. Okay. Okay, court has been accepted, and all are bound to abide by my verdict. Let's settle fees. How high can you boys go? Please understand I'm not going to judge an elimination for dimes. So ante up, or I turn him loose. Leader blinked. They went into huddle. Shortly he turned and said, We don't have much. Will you do it for five, for five Kong dollars apiece? Six of them. No, ought not to ask a court to judge elimination at that price. They huddled again. Fifty dollars, judge? Sixty. Ten each. And another ten from you, Tish, I said to the girl. She looked surprised. Indignant. Come, come, I said. Come, come, I said. Tonstoffel. She blinked and reached into pouch. She had money. Types like that always have. Um, she reaches into her pouch as soon as he says Tonstoffel. Uh, which, of course, means, and we'll talk about this later when he explains it to Stu, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, everybody has to pay up. Everybody puts their money in. Um, the accusers cannot get their... He's going to throw their case out and let him go if they can't pony up the money that he... And they haggle over the money, right? And it's not it's not dimes, but it's not a lot. Um, uh, it's not a lot of money either. Um, Jocelyn says, what do we think disrespect to a female would be? A civil or a criminal case? Oh, criminal. Clearly. I mean, that's that's the case here. That's exactly uh, what is uh, is being judged here. Uh, and it's a uh, um, and it's a case uh, for his life. Mudmore points out, uh, uh, and I agree with you, consent was also at the heart of the dispute in the first place. Right. Uh, consent is the issue in question in this whole trial, it turns out. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing to remember. And all of this elaborate, not just seeking of consent, but the fact that all the loonies involved, the accusers, Tish, Manny himself, are all operating. Like, nobody contests this, right? Nobody, it, this is this is all perfectly normal, right? Um, that everyone's consent not only needs to be sought, but is going to be, um, uh, you know, that, but that the system is going to be honored. Um, he's just said, you know, um, uh, that he, if they don't pay him, he's going to turn him loose. He has the power and they would respect that, right? They were just going to lynch this guy, right? But if, uh, if Manny says to Stu right now, you're free to go, they, they won't pay. So you're free to go the kids will let him go, right? They're not going to carry on lynching him, right? Everyone's going to abide by this. Everybody, um, <clears throat> everybody trusts in this system, right? Um, the consent really goes down like to the bone here, right? Everybody takes it for granted. Um, yeah. Um, David is wondering why she's uh, offended, why she looks indignant. Um, does she think she should get free justice as an aggrieved woman? Yes, she seems to. She seems to. Uh, she seems surprised uh, and offended by the fact that he is including her in the accusers. It's the guy. It's the it's the the boys, right? It's the guys who are accusing Stu. Um, they're the ones who are planning to lynch him. She is the cause. She was the one who was aggrieved, right? Um, uh, in the incident, as we will learn. 
but but Manny tells her, Tom Stoffel, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, if you are in this, if you are going to bring this accusation, ultimately, it is about her, um, and she and he insists that she be involved, uh, which I think is interesting. Oh, but we need a jury too. Okay, so apparently we do juries. It's not just that you hire somebody and then leave it to leave it to him, right? Um, uh, no, they say we should get a jury, and Manny says something about doing it properly, right? So this is this this is this is the full panoply of justice, right? To have uh, a judge and a jury. Uh, so how do you determine the jury? Uh, Oldest lad said, uh, this jury, you pick up chit or do we? He's wondering if they're going to have to pay the jury people. I pay it. I agreed to judge for 140 gross. Haven't you been in court before? But not going to kill my net for extra I could do without. Six jurymen, five dollars each. See who's in alley. One boy stepped out and shouted, jury work, five dollar job. They rounded up six men and were what you would expect in bottom alley. Didn't worry me, as had no intention of paying mine to them. If you go judge, better in good neighborhood with chance of getting solid citizens. Um, he's going through the motions of the jury here. He doesn't have any intention of actually paying any mind to what the jury says, he confesses. Um, but this is the system, it's it's a jury of the proximate, whoever is nearby, right? Um, I love the just stepping out and shouting into the street. Uh, for jury work, but of course they get paid, right? Uh, $5 each for sitting on the jury. Um, why? Tonstoffel, right? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, you can't expect anybody to do this stuff for free. Um, if you want justice, you need to be willing uh, to pay for it. Um, you know, you're asking them to do work. You're asking the judge to do work and take responsibility. You're asking the jurymen to do work. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we'll look at the beef and the, you know, at the crime, and then uh, uh, we'll come back and look at the verdict and finish the scene next time. Beef was tragically ridiculous. Fine example of why tourists should not wander around without guides. Sure, guides bleed them white. But isn't that what a tourist is for? This one almost lost life from lack of guidance. Had wandered into a tap room, which let Stilyagi hang out, a sort of club room. This simple female had flirted with him. Boys had let matter be, as of course they had to as long as she invited it. But at some point she had laughed and let him have a fist in ribs. He had taken it as casually as a loony would, but had answered in distinctly earthworm manner, slipped arm around waist and pulled her to him apparently tried to kiss her. Now, believe me, in North America, this wouldn't matter. I've seen things much like it. But, of course, Tish was astonished, perhaps frightened. She screamed. And pack of boys set upon him and roughed him up, then decided he had to pay for his crime, but do it correctly. Find a judge. Most likely they chickened. Chances are not one had ever dealt with an elimination, but their lady had been insulted. Had to be done. Notice again how he's kind of uh, uh, walking it back from this idea of the wild uh, frontier justice of, 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 of Luna, 
right? Again, I'm not saying that he's contradicting what was said earlier, but he's recontextualizing it for us, right? We're not to imagine loonies, you know, are walking around and they, you know, they just as soon kill you as look at you, right? That's not the case. Um, why did they look for a judge instead of just throwing him out the nearest airlock? They chickened because the chances are none of them had ever killed anybody before. And it's kind of a big deal, right? It's not something that even loonies do casually, we're told. Um, especially not guys this young. Um, so what's the problem? As Mudmore pointed out, lack of consent, right? Um, Manny points out, in North America, this wouldn't be an issue, right? I've see, he's, he saw things much like this in North America when he was there, right? Um, what has happened? She flirted with him, right? He responded. Um, she had laughed and let him have a fist in ribs. He had taken it as casually as a loony would. So... Like, he was... Things seemed to be going well. They were kind of on the same wavelength. Him and Tish. Stu and Tish. Right? They were flirting. She was continuing to flirt with him. And the boys could do nothing about it. Right? Because she was allowing it, and it is up to her. Right? But, when Stu then answered in a distinctly earthworm manner, right? When he then crosses the line and lays his hands on her and pulls her to him and tries to kiss her without her initiating, right? Um, that, again, in context, one could argue, in a North American context, right? Well, this, if she was flirting with him, he's flirting back to her, right? He's, you know... This is the logical escalation, right? This is, he's been given some kind of license to do this by her flirting with him. He seems to think, right? But in Luna, the boom comes down against this kind of thing. Um, this, is, this is an earthworm way of thinking. That a man would take it upon himself to initiate physical contact and even kissing with a woman before he has, before he's explicitly been given permission, before she, without her initiating it. Um, uh, is unthinkable to, loon, to loonies, right? Is this violates massive taboos, massive taboos. And again, is really interesting because it's, sort of calls into question the earthworm assumptions, right, uh, about this. The earthworm assumptions that Stu clearly had. Um, uh, you know, has she given you a license to act that way towards her? Really? Right? Um, uh, by her flirting with you? I don't know about that, right? And in, Looney, in Luna, they know exactly uh, where those lines are. Um, and they are very, very firmly drawn lines. Um, Manny's going to explain that element of it a little bit later. Um, but, um, but Mudmore, I'm really taken by your parallel there. Um, the, 
what is most jarring about this, what makes this um, a violent jar with Looney, it's, it's, it's about consent. It's about presuming on consent. It's about crossing the line um, and not abiding by the rules of conduct and how you treat other people, what is okay and what is not okay. Um, and it's a lot about consent. They consent. The boys consent to his joking and flirting with Tish because they, like, this is her right, right? As long as she invited it, they can't, they would never say anything about it. Um, if she took him off to uh, a bundling room uh, for sex, they could say nothing about it, right? Um, because if, if she initiates it. Um, and their consent is involved there, right? They, they, it never occurs to them to break that rule, uh, to try to, you know, make this unwanted newcomer uh, who is moving in on their lady, uh, as Manny calls her, um, it never occurs to them to stop that from happening because everybody consents. This is the way that things work, right? Um, there is a sense in which one of the things that I find really charming about this whole passage, this whole courtroom scene, um, uh, charming especially about the boys involved, is that um, it's one of the places where through most of the through most of the book and until this point, I don't think I would have called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, a utopian vision of the future. It doesn't seem like a utopian vision. It doesn't exactly seem like a dystopia either, but it doesn't really seem like a, dystopia, uh, a utopian vision. But in this scene, it begins to almost feel like that, right? A little picture of how a like good and productive society can can, uh, can be can operate um how this kind of sort of mutually consenting in these patterns of behavior um and the you know these kind of boundaries of respect for other people um can be established and maintained and self-policed without any force from above right this being a spontaneous you know, grassroots kind of effect, right? And I think that that's um, um, that's really interesting. Well, David, that's what I mean. David says, I don't think the boys did consent. They just don't have any say in the matter. Well, that's just it. They could. I mean, like, physically, they could. They could speak up. They could punch Stu in the face. Um, they could act in any... I mean, it's, it is in their power to act in the same ways that the North American guys might act. Uh, in uh, in these moments, but they don't. They choose not to. They choose not to because you're right. They don't have any choice. Like within their culture, they have no choice. Except they do have a choice. They have a choice whether or not to abide by the rules of their culture. We know what they want. They don't want Stu around. Stu is competition, right? Uh, and you know they're 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 all there to to you know to be with Tish. And there's this new guy, random guy, moving in on her, right? They don't want that, but they all consent to this happening because that's how it's supposed to be um, because they would never um, uh, their their very 
relationship with Tish, their very regard for Tish, um, uh, forbids them to act in the way that, you know, territorial males of Terra might act uh, in these circumstances. And again, this is why it, it begins to feel to me like a kind of, or like a sort of a species uh, of utopia, almost. Not completely. I mean, it's never like, it's, it's not just kind of like mapping out a utopia. Um, but we get these little utopian glimpses, which I think are pretty interesting. All right. More next time. We will resume with this. Um, tell you what. Let's go Go ahead and read. So I, I asked you to read through the end of um, part one uh, for next time. Go ahead and read the first chapter. We still have a bunch to talk about here in this scene. And then uh, through the end, we're only in chapter 11 out of 13. But go ahead and read one more chapter. So read the first chapter of part two uh, for next time. Because um, we might, who knows, we might get there next time. That'll be my goal. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, David, we can continue to debate about that next time. Make sure to bring that up and we can, uh, we can carry on debating at the beginning of class next time. Okay. Thanks everybody for joining, uh, uh, me have a good evening. And so upcoming schedule, um, I am actually going to be away next week. Come to think of it. I almost forgot about that. I'm going to be traveling with my family next week briefly, um, but I will be back the week after. I'm traveling again, but I should be home by Wednesday, I'm hoping. So um, I will not be able to be here next week, but I'll be here the week after that. Um, and then I should be here for a few weeks in a row. Um, so um, uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, and I... Um, uh, and I uh, will see you guys not next week, but the week after that. Good night, everybody.